Welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methodist Debakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. For many surgeons, questions about fertility and family planning loom large as they grapple with when to start a family while working long hours and intense jobs. In this episode, vascular surgeons Dr. Linda Lay and Dr. Paul Shaw delve into this topic with reproductive endocrinology and infertility expert Dr. Elizabeth McGee from Vermont University Medical Center and surgeons Dr. Lorenzo Gonzalez and Erica Sato, who share their deeply personal experiences with fertility, cancer, and surrogacy. There's really never a good time to have children. You know, you're you're in residency and there's so many hours and there's no money and there's no time. And then you're new faculty and there's no money and there's no time. And so it just, you, you always think, oh, if just when I get to some ever landmark in your life, then it'll be the right time. But it really almost never is. So it's just thinking about, you know, how can you make whatever time work for having having children? Listen on to find out more about fertility facts, myths, costs, and tips for making treatments more affordable, the pros and cons of genetic screening, and much more. It's a must-listen show for anyone interested in the challenges and solutions for fertility and family planning in high-stress, intense careers. Now let's get into it. I've been excited about this topic for months because this is such a common problem for female surgeons of any kind, yet um, talked about very uh, few uh, platforms. So today our guest speakers are Elizabeth McGee, Lorena Gonzalez, and Erica Sato. And of course, my co-host Palma Shaw is with us from Syracuse. Hey everybody, thanks for coming, joining us today. I'd like to introduce first Dr. McGee, who's an expert in reproductive endocrinology and infertility and the vice chair of the University of Vermont Medical Center. She's actually currently my classmate in our executive MBA program at the Heller School of Business at Brandeis University. And we are grateful to have her here to discuss this important topic that's burning in so many women's minds as we go through our careers. It's particularly a challenge for female surgeons given the long hours and the nature of our jobs. And I remember even when I was uh, younger, before I had my children, how concerned I was about when I, whether I would be able to have children when I found time to do so. Um, especially with your biologic tick, uh, clock ticking. Today we look forward to hearing what options are available for young women. And our second guest will be Dr. Lorena Gonzalez, my former partner, a successful academic vascular surgeon who had a change of heart and became a breast surgeon after um, working with us for some time. And she'll go into a little bit of those details. So we welcome her from Los Angeles where she just started her private practice at City of Hope. And our third guest is Dr. Erica Sato, um, who's a plastic surgeon at My Houston Body. Uh, Erica and I have been um, best friends since residency through her plastics fellowship. And so she's here because she did fertility as well as um, use a surrogate to have her beautiful baby boy, Dyson. Um, so welcome everybody. Um, so first we'd like to um, ask Dr. McGee, you know, just an overview, which I know we could talk about this for many shows, but the basics regarding fertility. Uh, well, I guess, you know, the main thing is just there's really never a good time to have children. 
um, you know, you're, you're in residency and there's so many hours and there's no money and there's no time. And then you're new faculty and there's no money and there's no time. And so it just, you, you always think, oh, if just when I get to some ever landmark in your life, then it'll be the right time. But it really almost never is. So it's just thinking about, um, you know, how can you make whatever time work for having, having children? And it can be really tough. I mean, even in OBGYN residencies, you'd think that um, it might be more compassionate and easier, but it's not. I mean, we do a lot of hours in our training as well. And um, it just, it's hard to make it fit. So you have to think about how, how that can work. And I think one thing is though, once you begin to have some say so about when your hours are, not necessarily how many of them there are, but you have some control over that, then it works a little bit better. And um, I think, um, you know, infertility care takes time as well. And it's not very flexible. You have to have the ultrasound on the day you need the ultrasound. You need to have, you need to trigger on the day that the follicles are big enough and you need to have your retrieval 36 hours after you've done your trigger. So you have to be able to make yourself available even for, um, you know, getting fertility care. We generally are able to do it at our institution on people from all kinds of subspecialties. Um, you, you know, they're generally able to slip away early in the morning or we can find time when we need to do things. Or you can find a rotation where it's not, uh, where you have a little more control over when you do things or have some friends that might cover you. Lisa, what are some myths that uh, you find that maybe you want to disillusion uh, some of our people watching? Some myths. Um, well, I would say, you know, there's been just this huge growth in the number of companies that want to freeze your eggs and they don't necessarily do any fertility care. They're just kind of brokers and they get you space in these places. And so they're all kind of all over the place and it can be very, very expensive. But there's a wide variety of what it costs to do a um, stimulation in a cycle and retrieve someone's eggs and freeze them. Um, for instance, at our institution, and I think we're probably the lowest that I have heard of because we deliberately have tried to provide cost-effective care. Um, we, uh, it's $6,000 for a um, fertility preservation cycle, and that includes medications, freezing, and the first or half of the first year of storage. So that's pretty low. And then for our hospital employees, which includes residents, fellows, and faculty, our insurance covers half of that cost. So that would probably be the lowest, but I've also seen it cost up to $30,000, $40,000 for one cycle of egg freezing. So there's a wide variety of costs. And so I would say caveat emptor, you know, ask questions, look around, don't just assume. And, um, you know, kind of look at, at success rates as well as uh, their success rates with IVF because not a lot of people have used their frozen eggs yet. It can be difficult to get data on that because people freeze them and then they wait many years and then come back and use them. So we're really just getting around to where we have significant numbers of people coming back to use their frozen eggs. And Eric, I know you, speaking of the insurance of paying for half of it, um, we were talking before this show and Erica, you were saying you didn't know this, it would have been nice, but we both trained at UT that the insurance you said that it it was good it would cover half of it too or it would pay for some of it right so there was another resident at the time a female resident who used it for her ivf and she said they covered a good portion of it yeah 
So I guess that's one one piece of advice that um, I've learned is you know because a lot of med students and residents will come throughout the uh, come to talk to us about well you know what about fertility I'm thinking about having children should I freeze my eggs and nobody really thinks about oh well maybe our insurance does cover it so that's something that you know people should really think about looking into because it may be a possibility in training. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, some states mandate coverage. Um, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and New York all do. Um, and as part of an assignment for our MBA program that Palm and I are in, I just um, wrote testimony for a bill for fertility preservation to be um, an in- covered as in insurance policies for cancer patients. It's not even covered for cancer patients in Vermont. And so um, that's really tragic sometimes when people just don't have the finances. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get it defined as part of cancer care instead of part of fertility care, which some people think of as a luxury instead of a basic human right. But I'm trying to define it as cancer care so they don't have to have that that ethical quandary about it. Um, But um, yeah, many states have um, fertility coverage. A lot of states have coverage just for the people that are employed in the hospital network that you're in, uh, especially if you go to the providers that are in network. Uh, so that can be, um, can make things possible that you might not have thought about. And, and also think about asking questions about how much things cost and why they cost that much. And you may not realize it, but you can actually negotiate with some practices about how much they're gonna charge you. If it's not covered by insurance, then they can sometimes find you free drug. They can find, uh, so you can negotiate. It's, um, especially if it's not something straight under insurance where you know you submit your bill and you get paid what insurance chooses to give you. But if you're paying cash for something, think about that. You can also use your healthcare savings account. So there, there are other ways to, to fund things. One of the other things though, Palma, is thinking about age. Um, basically IVF is less successful before the age of 24. Um, it, it probably has something to do with egg quality, but just like IVF is, is not successful at all much after the age of 43, and it's less successful after 38. So there's that window between 24 and 38 where IVF is more successful in general, like with fresh cycles. But there was a paper in Fertility and Sterility, oh, I can't remember the exact citation. I'll, I'll try to get it to you, Paul, and they can put it with the recording later. Uh, But they looked at when um, the basics of fertility and egg quality and the likelihood that somebody would use their eggs that they froze. Because many people freeze eggs when they're 28 or 24 and never use them. You know, they get married when they're 34. uh, They have children naturally and they never use those frozen eggs. So what they looked at was, was the cost, the likelihood, and then egg quality the likelihood of a pregnancy from an egg retrieved at certain ages. And the crossover where is the sweet spot was age 34. So that may be useful to some folks thinking about, uh, particularly to trainees that, you know, you have a little more time than you think you have. That's really reassuring. Did you want to have them share screen for the? Um, Yeah, let me, let me go ahead and share. Um, This is a different paper. This was from 2016, a fertility and sterility article. Um, by Dyer. And um, so this is, these are four graphs, um, age of patients 30 to 34, 35 to 37, 38 to 40, and 41 to 42. This is taking the patients in this individual private practice. They compared fresh IVF pregnancy rates 
and um, frozen eggs and the pregnancy rates. Um, and this is the age at which the eggs were frozen, not when the pregnancies occurred. Um, and they came up with the predicted probability from zero to 100% at the top in each square and the number of mature oocytes that needed to be vitrified. Vitrified is a fancy word for freezing. It basically, you take the, the uh, water out before you, you, store, you um, freeze and store the eggs. And so it's a vitrification procedure instead of frank freezing. But this is the number of eggs. And so up to 30, and you can see at 30 to 34, if you freeze say 20 eggs, then you've got an 80% chance of having a live birth of at least one child. But you've only got a uh, 50% chance of having two children. And then um, it drops a little bit further to 20% if you wanted to have three children, if you froze 20 eggs. But if you only freeze, say, four eggs, then um, you know there's not much of a chance for three. For two children, it's like 5%. And it gets up to about 30%. Uh, if you've got four eggs at 34. And the, the, the curve is very similar at 35 to 37. The overall peak is a little bit under 90 instead of over, but overall this curve is very similar. But when we get up to 38 to 40, then, um, you know, it's, you've got, the curve doesn't really curve and flatten at the top like it did in the other two ages. It still kind of stays pretty linear. And then the peak is about at 75% when you've got 30 eggs. And then at 41 to 42, our know, peak is just over 50% with 30 eggs. So that's kind of looking at things because sometimes I think people think they can do one cycle and freeze eight eggs and, you know, and be good to go. And if you're 30 to 34, you, you, you'll have a 50% chance, but you may want to freeze significantly more eggs than that, um, depending on what you want um, kind of those chances to be. Um, a lot of times with cancer patients, we have to just go with what we can get because you can't delay chemotherapy and treatment any longer, you know, and, and we're lucky that the oncologist will let us take the three to six weeks that it takes to do a cycle. And so you get what you get. But if you're doing um, fertility preservation or, or what some people would call social egg banking for non-medical reasons, then you have the, the luxury of doing multiple cycles if you want to. A quick question about, you were talking about the, uh, freezing your eggs and that the age, but um, I heard that at, after a certain age, you should freeze embryos versus eggs. So is that true or because this is well, like success that depends rate is on, better? You know, do you have sperm for those embryos? I mean, pretty much the success rate with thawing and pregnancies from embryos is always higher than from eggs okay. because you've already gone through the fertilization process and that initial growth in the lab because, um, you know, we have not all eggs will fertilize and then um, not all the eggs will survive freezing and then they won't all progress to blastocyst. So you've already, if you freeze embryos, you've already bypassed a number of those steps. And so the success is higher with embryos all the time. But what if you're 28 and you haven't met Mr. Wright or, or um, you know. You're just with Mr. Wright now at 28. <laughs> you use donor sperm and then you meet Mr. Wright. Does he want to parent Mr. Donor Sperm's kids? So it gets really complicated. And so the reason you freeze eggs is because they are haploid. They belong to you and no one else. And then they can be joined with some future partner sperm to create embryos that belong to both of you. Uh, Palma, I'm sorry, I interrupted you with my question. No, about... I just that was a great segue into uh, Lorena's uh, story. I'd love to hear. So it's a complicated story that I know she'll be able to tell us 
Um, she's a very brave woman, and what she went through, most of us couldn't have gone through, and I'd love her to share her story with everybody. She's an inspiration for so many women. Thank you for your kind words, Palma. So I was about almost four years out of my vascular surgery training, practicing uh, in upstate New York when I got diagnosed with breast cancer. I actually self-diagnosed myself. Um, I knew exactly what was going on. Um, but to cut to the chase, I was diagnosed with stage 2B triple negative breast cancer. And shortly thereafter, I discovered that I was also a BRCA1 mutation carrier. And so my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, well, uh, I'm going to get chemotherapy. It's going to be uh, gonadotoxic and we don't have children. So what are we going to do? I was 36. My husband's also 36. We had been postponing having children because I can echo um, the previous comments about it's never the right time to have children. We just kept postponing because we thought this is not the right time. This is not the right time. And now we were faced with, well, you might never have children. And we're like, well, let's try to do something to see if we can. And so I decided to pursue fertility preservation prior to initiating my new adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, they only harvested eight eggs at the time of my first cycle. They offered me another cycle. I refused it because I wanted to initiate my chemotherapy. And um, five of those eggs went on to fertilize. So we banked five embryos. I went on to have neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by bilateral mastectomy and radiation therapy. And then after I completed radiation therapy, I had a change of heart and decided that I wanted to become a breast surgeon. Um, and so I had to start applying to breast surgery fellowships. So I did that and I matched to my number one choice, which was City of Hope in California. So I uprooted my family of two and uh, moved to California for my fellowship. But before I did that, I um, had one of two of my embryos implanted. Um, one of them took and the other one didn't. And I am now the proud mother of a 10 month old boy. Huh. Um, I am cancer free for a little over three years now. And um, I'm practicing uh, breast cancer surgery in uh, the South Bay of Los Angeles for City of Hope and one of their um, standalone cancer centers. But I'm very proud of this little guy here. And um, I like to think that my story inspires um, my patients. And now through participating here, I hope to inspire other uh, women surgeons as well. Well, that is an inspiring story um, to go through so much, but to have a happy ending. And he's really cute and healthy. So congratulations. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Erica, so now kind of a spin on things. Let's hear your story. I mean, I know your story, obviously, but about doing fertility and using a surrogate. And also, if you don't mind telling us how much that costs, because we all need to know for planning purposes. <laughs> um, so I, my story is obviously different. Um, I didn't get married until I was 35, which I think is common with female surgeons. Um, so I got married at 35 and got off the pill and thought I was going to be pregnant two seconds later. 
and I wasn't. And so my friends said, you know, at your age, don't mess around, get the fertility sticks. So we did, it didn't work. So off to um, the fertility doctor, I went and found out that I was actually in menopause and um, that we didn't have a lot of time. So literally a month later, we went into our first cycle of IVF and I only made four embryos or four eggs. And then um, all four took sperm, but at genetic testing, um, we only had two good ones. So we banked those. And I did something that I think a lot of female surgeons might do and that I was angry at the situation. And it was probably the first time that I wasn't able to do something right or well. And I sat and pouted about it and time passed. And when I was ready to actually make a move, I was then 40. Um, and I talked to my fertility doctor and she said, um, probably not a good idea to go through another cycle of IVF because of my age and let's move forward ASAP with the two embryos we have. But she suggested we use a surrogate because we had a long talk about were we up for adoption or egg donors if our two didn't work out and we wanted our own. Um, so we did a surrogate and we used a company called Shared Conception. Um, and it's almost like Match.com. You literally get on there and you can sift through these couples and you know everything about them and you have interviews with each other. And um, we found an amazing couple, a 25-year-old um, female um, that had had two children and we left her right away. And so we picked her and she picked us and... Everything went great. We put one of our two embryos in her and um, he took and we had a healthy pregnancy. She carried to 40 weeks and um, he's thriving. So it was great. Uh, the cost was crazy. So for us, you know, you had mentioned already cost and we were stupid and we didn't do any homework. And we went to CCRM and we paid 40000 for one cycle, <laughs> which is a ton of money. I didn't know that at the time. Um, we did ask about any sort of discounts. They didn't offer any. And then for the surrogate, we paid over 100000 So after the doctor bills with the insurance, we paid 166000 to get our baby. Well, he's worth every penny of that 166000 <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, So great, two great stories. We have a comment, um, and Lisa, you can comment on this. While egg freezing, if one has the resources in one's early 30s, would seem like a great way to cheat aging eggs, if the eggs are used in the future, that mandates going through IVF, which can be associated with failed transfers and other complications, i.e. you're not home free. It's important for young women to know that as well. Yeah, that's exactly the case. But the graphs I showed you was the take-home baby rate, not the take-home embryo rate. So... Um, that's when, when we try to do our stats, what people care about is exactly what you mentioned, is going home with a baby, having a picture like um, Lorena has. You know, they don't, you don't care about were you pregnant, did you have a biochemical pregnancy, or was you, could you tell by ultrasound, or whatever. Um, and as women age, or as the eggs are, come from women that are older, then there's a higher likelihood of miscarriage, generally because of aneuploidy, because you know we all learn in medical school that as women get older, there's a higher incidence of Down syndrome, but also other aneuploidies. 
But Erica, you mentioned one thing that I think is somewhat controversial that adds a lot of cost to IVF, and that's the genetic testing. Um, that's currently controversial. We have a patient that went through what you did and had no normal embryos. And so we looked at them and we put one of her abnormal embryos in and she had a totally normal baby. So there's lots and lots of reports about this. And, um, you know, really for young women, genetic testing, unless you've got a, a, a genetic disease and you're doing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis as opposed to pre-implantation pre-implantation genetic screening, then um, it's not really all that beneficial for younger women because they actually even have a lower live birth rate. Now for older women that have a higher incidence of aneuploidy, you're more likely to find an abnormal embryo when you do that screening and you may reduce the number of miscarriages that you might have. Because most of these aneuploidies, if they truly are really aneuploid, because sometimes they're not, they might be mosaic, then um, it does reduce the number of miscarriages you go through before you finally have one that sticks and grows. So, so that's absolutely true that um, the process, the road of, of infertility care is for many people a long one, and it's not a straightforward mm -hmm. trip. To There's lots of heartbreak along the way sometimes. I was offered pre-implantation genetic testing because I had already known that I was a BRCA1 carrier. Uh, in the setting of five embryos that were harvested, the eggs were harvested when I was 36. The priority between my husband and I was to get pregnant. So I elected not patient genetic testing and I let kind of fate take its course. Um, I had a boy, still has a 50-50 chance of inheriting BRCA1 mutation, still has a higher risk of developing prostate cancer. Um, and breast cancer, although it's much higher for BRCA2 mutation carriers than it is for BRCA1 mutation carriers. Um, the other issue that complicated my course is that I then had to have um, a risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy. And I ended up uh, postponing that because it was offered to me at the same time as my risk-reducing uh, mastectomy. I ended up postponing that um, because I wanted to try to get pregnant on my own after my periods returned from the, the menopause that ensued after chemotherapy. Um, we ended up not getting pregnant, but I also didn't wait too, too long. I pursued the IVF because it was a priority. And um, I went on at 40 after I had my, my son to have my risk-reducing self-hingo-oophorectomy. Long story short, they actually found something called a stick lesion in uh, my right fallopian tube, which is a an ovarian cancer precursor lesion. And I ended up having a completion hysterectomy and then some. Uh, the rest of it turned out negative, but now I I have embryos banked. I have three. And um, we talked about surrogacy, uh, but it's, it's so expensive. We just purchased a home in California. Um, if you don't know anything about real estate in California, it basically emptied our our savings accounts. So we're now potentially thinking of looking for a surrogate, but also having to save up for surrogacy. Yeah. The prices of surrogates or, or surrogates or gestational carriers vary quite a bit across the country as well. Um, one thing that I would encourage anybody that's con considering using a gestational carrier is keep in mind, you need to buy insurance for her because there is a mortality rate with being pregnant. 
Um, it's um, depending on race and, and many other kinds of things, it varies quite a bit. It is one of those areas where there's disparities. But, um, you know, everybody saw um, Downton Abbey. And so, you know, preeclampsia still kills women. Uh, you know, blood clots and stuff still do. So it's like one in, in uh, one in a thousand, I think. So it's, it's eight, 10 and 10,000 is how they report those demographics. Uh, but that's still one in a thousand is not completely unheard of. And so, um, you know, you also have to think about the risk that you're asking another person to take to carry your child. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's expensive. And then also for all the insurance uh, for that that uh, person and if they already have a family you got to think about uh, providing for their family too in that rare instance but there's a number of companies that provide that type of insurance and they provide that liability insurance so another question for um the guests that have been through fertility what was the hardest part of fertility for me i think i mean i think it was just wrapping my head around the fact that i was even having to do that but the hormones are difficult and they make you very emotional. Um, and so that was hard. And you definitely don't want to do multiple cycles. It's not fun. So I think it's discouraging, especially if you don't come out with a good number of thinking. Because for me, and I thought this was a little bit weird, but as I was waking up from my cycle, they said, oh, we only got four. Um, you know, you could do it for half price if you sign right now and we could go into a hormone cycle right now and you just feel like it's a car salesman, you know, you're like, what, what? I only got four, excuse me. You know, so the whole thing was hard. Infertility is a business and it helps to keep that in mind as you go forward with this. I mean, um, I'm not in private practice. I work at a university. I, get, I love to be able to tell patients I get paid the same, whether you choose to do this or whether you choose to do that. And I like that um, because it gives me, it may be a false notion, but it gives me this idea of independence that it, it, my livelihood doesn't depend on whether you choose to do IVF or not. Whereas folks in private practice, it, it's a much different um, decision thing. And so you do need to kind of put on your, your armor a little bit like you would going in to buy a car. And we all know how well women do at car dealerships. So, um, <laughs> you know, you, you got to think about that because they, it is marketing and they will pull at your tart strings and they'll offer things that may or may not be so. And, and you have to think about it and ask lots of questions. Lorena, what about you? Um, I, I experienced this sense of disgust when I walked into the fertility center where I was referred to because the marketing aspect of it was so um, in your face it it not only made me angry it disgusted me so i the minute i stepped into the center without knowing this before but the minute i got in there i was like okay this is going to be someone trying to sell me a product and i know that i need to attack it like i'm purchasing a car and by the way we recently leased a car and i got a fantastic yard <laughs> But I digress. The most difficult part, I think, of the whole process for me was the fact that I had postponed um, for so long and now someone was going to take the ability to have a child away from me because they were going to assault me with chemotherapy. And that sense of like giving up control, I didn't want to do it. So I kind of did this 
not so much because we wanted to have children, but because I didn't want to give up the control of not being able to have them. Later on, my my you know AC life, my BC life, my AC life, my after cancer life, we decided that it was a priority. So we actually moved forward and implanted the embryos. One of the other things that I thought was quite difficult was being disappointed at the sheer numbers. I mean, I postponed chemotherapy to get eight measly oocytes and then only five fertilized. And I was just like, okay, uh, I was devastated, but it worked out in my favor. I only had to go through one cycle of implantation. I asked them to put two embryos in because we wanted to increase our chances of um, having live birth. And I have to say we were really, really lucky. Now, ironically, you've got embryos that you have to figure out what to do with. Yes. And we just continue to pay the rent, we call <laughs> yes. it. We continue to pay the rent because we don't know what to do with them, really. So here's another thing that we'll probably discuss to you is that there are investment companies that buy futures in eggs. So egg futures, not like chicken eggs, but human eggs, because your storage fees are an annuity. You pay them, you know, every year or whatever in their in your periodic base, and so it is an investment, just like they used to. Their mortgage brokers that um, package and resell mortgages. There are large companies that are commercial companies that store eggs and sperm and embryos um, for years, and they sell futures in those storage um, payments that people make over time. So it 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 really is a business. I, I was really kind of freaked out when I heard that. But then, I, you know, you think about it, well, it's like anything else. But And people are pretty likely to make those payments. Um, although we do have a problem with abandoned um, fertility tissues where we've lost touch with people and they haven't been in touch with us. And then what do we do? Now, if you're at a commercial bank and you, don't, you miss one payment, then they will thaw your tissues. Um, you know, it, they'll, they'll make a point to try to get in touch with you and everything first, but um, they're in business to be in business and, and they don't necessarily have that same compassion. Um, but, you know, we're a small mom and pop operation and so we can afford to be more individualized, but we're also not that big and we have a big, we have a backlog because we don't have enough spaces to do all the patients that, that present to us. We can't grow because there's no space in our academic health care center because the vascular surgeon's got all the space. <laughs> Just we deserve that. <laughs> so, what common as a breast surgeon? Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things that troubled me about my decision making was that I had already had breast cancer and was IVF going to put me at risk for developing a recurrence? Mm -hmm. So, I had triple negative breast cancer. It's a hormone insensitive cancer, right? And so, I went into it thinking if my risk is there, it's probably low. I've actually done research into this. It does not, fertility uh, preservation or participating fertility treatments does not increase your risk for breast cancer. Um, the other comment I made was that I didn't want to delay my treatment. The retrospective trials that look at whether fertility preservation after a diagnosis of cancer is made delays treatment. The largest one only looked at about 170 participants and they did find a statistically different um, median time to initiating their chemotherapy after their uh, surgical intervention, but it was less than 15 days. In the grand scheme of things, less than two weeks to initiate chemotherapy 
for neoadjuvants specifically, it doesn't really make a big deal. For adjuvant, there's papers documenting, you know, which either way that you really want to get it started within 30 days. But if if having a child is that important to you, ASCO promotes fertility preservation. Yeah, there's also some older data from um, University of Pittsburgh that looked at women uh, that had pregnancy and a cancer diagnosis at a similar time, and being pregnant did not um, change the prognosis of the breast cancer. So um, that's that's also kind of a positive thing in a very difficult time of very difficult decisions. And it doesn't cause ovarian cancer either, right, Dr. Lee? No. Um, the increase in ovarian cancer that it's correlated with fertility treatments is likely more related to abnormalities of the ovary that cause both infertility and cancer. But I mean, there are, there are tons of studies that show correlations. Lisa, I wanted you to comment on something we discussed before we started the show about what happens when you have embryos and then there's a divorce or how, how would you manage that? Yeah, that's one of the things that we talk about, you know, with the, particularly with younger folks with leukemia or something like that, because um, they tend to be a little bit younger than our breast cancer patients. And, you know, they may have a guy, but he may not be the guy. And then the question is, do they want to create embryos with this person? Because embryos do survive and you have a higher incidence of live birth rate with embryos than you do with per egg. But if it's your egg, then it is your egg. It doesn't belong to anyone else. It's your genetics. It belongs solely to you. And a guy's sperm belongs solely to him. But once you create a gamete, you know, a gamete, you provide your gametes together and you provide and create a zygote, then it's half yours and half wherever the sperm came from. If it's donor sperm, you bought the sperm. So the whole thing is yours. But um, if you're married and you create embryos together and, and they're in storage and then you get divorced, and you haven't already talked about this and you don't have a, an agreement about it, then it has to get discussed in the divorce agreements and you cannot make a man reproduce against his will. So um, if he does not want his embryos to be used and they're also your embryos, that means you can't use them either. So, um, you know, that's an issue. And that's why I talk to folks really about thinking about who they're with and are they always going to be with them? And, um, you know, do they want to freeze eggs? Sometimes we'll advise folks to freeze eggs and maybe a few embryos, depending if they have a lot. If they're a younger patient and they have lots of eggs, you know, that, that's something to kind of have things both ways. Uh, but they're hard decisions and you, you have to kind of think about it. Erica, you thought about it, correct? Well, I, um, I mean, my husband is eight years younger than me, but one of the things that happened to us at almost every visit to the fertility doctor was, oh, his stuff is perfect. Everything is great. He was an overachiever with his sperm. And, you know, I was the problem at every visit. And so it wears on you a little bit, but it made me think, you know, two surgeon household, there's a high divorce rate. And if I'm the problem, he could go on and marry somebody else and have kids. And I only made two eggs. So we only have two embryos. And so I was pretty straightforward and told my husband, listen, like, these are mine. We're signing papers that says that these are mine if we split. And he agreed to it under the stipulation that he got to parent them also. But yeah, I was covering every ground because I knew I wasn't getting any more. 
Very interesting. That that would never, I would never think to do that if I uh, went through fertility, but now I know. Um, so we do have some questions before we end the show. Um, uh, the first one is, what are some creative, caring, or affectionate ways your partner had helped with the process? So my husband um, actually gave me my injections. Um, I, uh, at the beginning, had a really hard time injecting myself with progesterone. Um, and he, you know, overcame his fear of needles and blood, essentially. Uh, despite the fact that he was married to a vascular surgeon, he he uh, he overcame that fear and he did some of my injections. And that was helpful. Erica? I think for me... Um, you know, when when we started talking and knew we were going through IVF, my husband said to me that, you know, he's also a physician and he knew when we got married that I was eight years older and that we might have an issue because 35 is kind of that spot where you start to have problems. And we were 35, when, you know, I was 35 when we got married. And so he just told me like, whatever happens, happens. I married you and I'm happy if it's just us. And if we get a baby, great. If we don't, no big deal. So I didn't feel like there was a lot of pressure on me. That's good. Um, okay, the next question is kind of similar to the first, but what were some support systems you've implemented during the process of freezing eggs? I mean, for me, I was really open about it. I think, you know, a lot of people, I found that a lot of my friends have gone through this and were not open about it, but I was open about it. And I think that helped because then other people came forward and talked about it. And then I knew I wasn't alone. My husband and I were kind of doing this solo. We didn't have family or, or um, too many friends that weren't actually my coworkers in uh, Syracuse him as well. Um, but I was also very open uh, with it. I was very open with everything basically, especially my cancer diagnosis. And I had built up a good supportive community around the time of my cancer. And they were, they were supportive when um, I decided to proceed with IVF. I will say I had the best partners throughout my breast cancer uh, treatment. I've met other practicing uh, physicians who have had their own health issues and complain about their partners. So Alma, thank you. There's also some national support groups um, such as Resolve uh, that are, um, you know, patient support groups. Um, I often will encourage patients to talk to, we've got some social work counselors, um, LCSWs, that um, uh, are affiliated with our practice. And I encourage people to talk with them as they're working through decision-making processes, um, especially when people are going to use donor gametes, either donor eggs or donor sperm. I really encourage the family system to to work that through with a counselor that's experienced with fertility care counseling because uh, it can make a huge difference there's also some online um, resilience kinds of things support things uh, that some researchers that uh, there's actually a division of fertility and sterility that is psychological health and they have some online things that help for people that don't have access to a counselor so there are a lot of things. And if you pick a good practice that's not in it just for the money, then sometimes your providers and the fertility nurses, and we have fellows that are lovely people, um, are also a support system for people going through care. 
it can be pretty complicated. I can remember, I won't say what specialty or subspecialty it was, but one particular month we had a trainee and a faculty member that were both going through some fertility care at the same time. And we had to do some creative scheduling to make sure they didn't see one another in the office. Um, so it, it can get quite complicated. The, the faculty member was going through a standard IVF. The trainee was freezing her eggs. And so it was very um, interesting how that worked. She had told a few really close friends. She didn't tell many people because she was in a power specialty. I won't again, identify which one because um, Vermont's a small place, but she didn't really feel like she could let her training program know that what she was doing. Um, so there's some people do feel a need to be secretive, especially when you're powerless in, in, in a situation that you're in. But a good practice will help you with that. I mean, we did early morning appointments. We separated things into morning and afternoon. You know, we would do scans before somebody needed to go start their clinical assignment for the day. So there are ways you can help people. And um, last but not least, um, to end the show, what are some of the things um, that you can do to maximize your fertility? So I'm going to say one thing to these guys, um, since this is cardiovascular folks, wear your lead, wear your lead, wear your lead. Um, I, people that do a lot of imaging in the OR, um, men and women, um, radiation kills eggs, radiation kills sperm. So, and then the other things are basic health things. Don't smoke. Don't weigh too little. Don't weigh too much. Um, don't microwave in plastic. <laughs> Avoid POFA, you know, those kinds of environmental estrogens and stuff, because all of those things do have a cumulative effect on your ovarian reserve. Thank you, Lisa. But wear your lead. <laughs> Even though it's heavy, even though it's hot and you're sweating like crazy, it protects your ovaries. Palma, any questions? No, that was great. I'm so envious. I wish I had uh, seen this 20 years ago. And I really know we're going to have a lot of viewers coming to watch this once it hits YouTube. So very, very valuable. And uh, Lisa, you've been amazing. And Lorena and Erica, uh, God bless you because you're very brave women. And I really admire you. Thank you so much, really. Yeah, I, the, the two um, other co-panelists, you guys are both amazing. And, and thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing your stories. That's not an easy thing to do. And so I applaud you both for that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for today's show. We'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences regarding fertility and pregnancy in a surgical career. Send us a tweet using hashtag CVNow, and don't forget to tag us at DeBakeyCVEDU. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakeyCV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.